Well, good evening. If you have your Bibles with you, can you hear me okay? Good evening. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to First Kings chapter 8, and we'll try to conclude kind of the second part of this chapter of this event. Lots to cover. I don't know if we can cover all of it this evening. After I studied this chapter, I realized it could be divided into probably five different sermons. There's a lot of applications to hear to, to, for us to consider, a lot of moving targets. I won't get to a lot of them tonight. Uh, I may come back to this uh, in the future, but this is a, it's, it's quite an amazing chapter when we see what is happening and what has unfolded uh, in 1 Kings 8. Uh, royal request is kind of our theme, and I chose, I told uh, Delai that I chose Deuteronomy 7 as a scripture reading because there is an important emphasis there upon God's election of Israel, right? The principle of election, it's, it's found in the scripture, uh, in many places of the scripture, and it's, it's quite clear, right, throughout the Old Testament, by and large, unless there was some, there may be one exception in Kings that we will get to later, if you believed in the true God, you had to somehow be connected to the nation of Israel, right? It's just, it's just a matter of fact, um, you had to somehow become part of these people, when Prince Charles was making some request for his coronation service, you may remember that he made some odd requests that didn't make the clergy members happy, at least not some of them. He wanted to include in his coronation service, which is based on a Christian liturgy, whether you, whether you agree with that or not, that's, that's the case, right? He wanted to include some other faith leaders, right? Some maybe a Muslim, a Hindu, and, and elsewhere, because he wanted to be more inclusive of what his kingdom represented in his day. Thankfully, all of his requests were denied. But when we come to 1 Kings 8, Solomon lifts seven key requests to God, and all of these are very practical. Most of them are practical, and we can, we can see how they may apply to us as Christians today. Although we believe that God was not tied down by dwelling in an earthly sanctuary, right? His presence is all throughout the universe and beyond. At the same time, we also believe that in that structure, God made himself known in a special way to the people of Israel. They're both true, aren't they? In this part of 1 Kings 8, Solomon is responding to what happened in the first 11 verses, right? This is the temple dedication ceremony, probably the greatest day in Solomon's life. All of it is positive. I find nothing in this text that tells me or gives any hint that Solomon's, his heart is, is, is divided yet. It's, it's all very positive, isn't it? Uh, it's a wonderful section of the Old Testament. And remember that in 1 Kings 1-11, through this overview of Solomon's reign the majority of the chapters are about what his relationship to the temple building and dedication, right, involved. That this is the the high point of his reign as king. This was the most important thing he did in his life. Once Solomon brought the ark into the temple, remember we mentioned this briefly last time. Once the ark is brought into the city of Jerusalem and eventually into the tabernacle. The cloud descended, God's visible, somehow his manifestation of his presence with his people. And I had suggested that the ark, which was the center of Israel's really religious identity up to this point, is going to begin to slowly expand. It's going to now become the temple and the city and eventually all of the new 
creation. And that, that may come as a shock to some of us. There are some other things that I think happen in the life of David that tell us that there are other changes that were developing even within the worship of God amongst Israel at this critical time period in their history. Temple worship is not identical to tabernacle worship. I am completely convinced of that, and that was where I wanted to go in the last point in the outline, but uh, we'll save that for a later time. Our first thought here this evening, Solomon thanked the Lord, right? This is in response to the divine approval, right? The cloud that descended upon the temple so that the priest had to stop their work. Why was Solomon so grateful? This is one of those softball questions. It's so easy. You already know the answer. But verse 12 begins, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. I mean, this would have been a massive gathering of people when you just look through the chapter of all of the representatives that were there, the, the, the officials that were there for the temple dedication. Solomon's opening words at the dedication of the temple, right, about God descending in that thick cloud of darkness, it refers to what has just taken place in verses 10 and 11 of this chapter. But as you know, this was not the first time that this happened in Israel's history. Nearly the identical descending of God's presence took place when the tabernacle was completed. And even before the tabernacle was completed, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day followed Israel. That's not just a weather pattern, is it? Right? There were benefits, right, to, of protection, but that was God's presence being made known to his people as they traveled through the wilderness, wandering. This thick cloud of darkness, right, it's attested to in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Also, Mount Sinai, there was a thick cloud that descended as where. There's a common theme, right, so far in the Bible. And so these words that we see in verses 12, 13, and 14, they're almost like a brief introduction to this dedication speech of Solomon as he says that the Lord had said that he would dwell in thick darkness. This comes from God's understanding in, in his revelation to mankind. Moses didn't invent this, and Solomon didn't invent this. Again, there's more, this is again, there's much that could be said here. There is mystery in God's imminence and in his transcendence, right? God reveals things that he, he teaches to us that we know. You say, what does that mean, imminence and transcendence? Well, we all know what imminence means, right? God has come near us, near his people. And this is an example of that here. We also sometimes talk about God is also transcendent. And some people think of transcendent as meaning what? He's like way up there, right? Out there in outer space. But it's not just a distance concept, is it? How far would God have to go to be transcendent? Some have suggested it's something about his royal splendor as well. But both of those Theological, these biblical concepts are true, right? We have to always believe both. And it's easy to fall into one or the other categories and emphasize one at the expense of the other. They're both true and they're both there in the Bible. Our next question, what was the basis for Solomon's prayer? 
Again, this is a, throughout chapter 8, it, there, this is a beautiful prayer uh, for us to, to ponder together this evening. This question and the next question are blended together, B and, uh, the, the two and third questions, but verses 15 through 21. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Right? Already we see the, 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 the joining together of, of temple and kingship. Verse 17, now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your house to build, in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart, right? David's desire was a good desire, wasn't it? Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. I mean, Solomon is, is perhaps so grateful because he is the only person in the history of humanity that had this privilege to experience this fulfillment of God's promise. No one else had, not even David. That's one obvious reason why he is just simply maybe dumbfounded and thankful, right, in this, this, this worship setting that God would use him, right, and it is acknowledged his presence, his, his approval, right, of the temple being completed. Solomon is basing his words on what? He's basing these words on, we could say, Scripture, what God has already revealed. He is recalling the, God, the promise of God. He goes back even to the Exodus, doesn't he? God brought these people out for a purpose, and what, the big purpose is what? so that God would have a people to worship him. You could, you could drive that point, point home, the, the, the rest of this chapter, right? Worship, that, that's why God created this world. We are called to worship him. And we are seeing this typologically, right, develop in the life of Solomon. There is, there is a new development in the stage of re- revelation and redemption, Solomon is basing his speech before the assembly on what God himself has said. In many ways, there's nothing new. There's very little new in chapter 8 that you can't find somewhere in the Pentateuch, in what Moses has said. The two primary passages, you probably already know one of these, relating to the words that Solomon just spoke in front of all the people as he gave this double benediction. The first is the great Exodus recorded in Exodus chapter 12, verse 16. Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, he's recalling, right? He's connecting that event to the promise to David. And that's done multiple times in this chapter. 
There are many passages where God reveals to Moses and Israel that he would choose the place where his name was to dwell. It wasn't Israel that would make the decision. God would make that decision. Three times in Deuteronomy 12, verses 5, 11, and 21, we are told that God would one day choose the place where he would be worshipped. That's why this is a major development in Old Testament history. Again, in Deuteronomy 16, three times God states, I will pick the place where I will be worshipped, and that means that's where I will dwell with my people. Verse 2, 6, and 11 of Deuteronomy 16. Solomon is appealing to what everyone in Israel already knew. And he is recognizing that God is fulfilling his promise after years of the people not knowing where they would one day dwell with God and the land would be at rest and God would be at rest in this symbolically speaking here. Just as our scripture reading from Deuteronomy 7 emphasized God's election of the nation of Israel, right? They were to be his special people out of all of the nations of the earth. So likewise, God chose David and his descendant Solomon to rule the earth forever, right? This is not a temporary dynasty. This was a promise, right, that even predates David that there will be a ruler, right, that will come out of Judah, and this ruler will rule the world forever. This immediately affects all of us, doesn't it? Beginning in Jerusalem, then go into Samaria, and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth, this king and this throne will be the, the one that will reign forever. And this king and his name will dwell with his people Again, we witness the coming together of the concepts of kingship, temple, and even city in verses 15 through 16. Solomon reverses the order in some of the scripture texts he refers to Moses and David. Solomon first bases his speech of gratefulness to what God promised David in, of course, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Solomon was grateful and filled with thanks to God, partly because he was the king chosen to oversee this major development in God's unfolding plan of salvation. I mean, if the temple would not have been built at the stage of history, what is the point of your kingship? I mean, this was a major role of the king of Israel. Jesus has not yet come. So let's not jump too quickly to Jesus without appreciating what the Israelite, the faithful Israelite, would have understand and rejoiced in in that day. The temple was something good when God instituted it for that time. It wasn't a place of phoniness or fake spirituality. And we need to be careful not to oversimplify that. And I'm thankful that none of you do that. In what sense was the covenant with David fulfilled? I mean, isn't that what Solomon says? In verses 15 through 21, verse 15, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. Later in verse 16, I chose David. What's this language about fulfillment? Verse 20, now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. That's interesting. Apparently, Solomon understood that the completion of the temple and now the dedication was a fulfillment of God's promise to David. Now, it wasn't all of the fulfillment, but it was a necessary fulfillment, wasn't it? Again, this promise originally goes back to what God said to David 
this special promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the eternal dynasty that would come from David. David receives this promise from God, but he did not experience the fulfillment in his lifetime. And the Bible tells us that David's desire to build God a house was commendable. It was a holy ambition, but God did not allow David to do it. He chose someone else, his son. And David never lived to see this promise realized, even though from the chronicler's perspective, he devoted his final years with a lot of energy to prepare for the eventual building of the temple. It was the new king who had come, the one after David, who would build the temple, again, by the grace of God. That's what was described in 1 Kings 5, 6, and 7. And so Solomon is overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise to God. As he looks back to the promise given at the time of the Exodus and the days of Moses, up until the times of David, this holy nation that God had formed, a people that were called out of the world, a unique covenant people. And there in Jerusalem, the city of David, we now have the temple, the, what we know as Mount Zion. It is a new Moriah. And these themes begin to merge closer together, don't they? At this stage in God's revelation. And so God made it very clear that he would dwell with his people in Jerusalem, in the temple there on Mount Zion. Again, the next scene in verses 22 through 26 are quite amazing. Before all the people gathered and after learning that God approved of the temple dedication and the glory cloud descended upon the temple, King Solomon spread his hands towards heaven and began praying to God. I mean, this is one time and this is one of a few times in Israel's history where their leaders, right, are following God. And that must have been a great joy to the nation. Could you imagine seeing Solomon do that? What a sight to behold. Solomon loved God and he loved God's people. Verse 22 through 26, we read this. Then Solomon stood before the altar, right? The outer courtyard, the bronze altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. And then here comes that conditional part. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken by your servant David, my father. Again, he is praying scripture, isn't he? He's speaking scripture and his hands are outstretched before the whole assembly. I mean, that is a beautiful sight even to even ponder in our mind of a king of Israel. Do you think we're going to see a lot of this after Solomon dies in the book of Kings? You think that this prayer and this whole chapter might be an anticipation of what's to come or what is not to come? I mean, it's very clear that the God of Scripture is the true God. There are no other real gods in that sense. God is utterly unique. He's in a category by himself, isn't he? 
We're not in that category. He is incomparable. There, there is nothing or no one to compare to God. Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we know that throughout the unfolding chapters of the book of Kings, we're not going to have a lot of experiences with kings over God's people that are, that are acting like Solomon in this mode of worship. And I'll illustrate this with something that is contrary to this. We're not Catholic, but they recently had something called the Catholic World Youth Day. And just imagine what I say here, that this was a Sovereign Grace Bible Church annual youth retreat, and we joined together with all of the churches uh, that we could think of that had like faith around the world. This was held recently in Lisbon, Portugal, and I think over 300,000 Catholic youth attended uh, this week-long or so event. And I read this interesting article and I saw the interview. Uh, Jules, Jules Gomez is one of the, uh, he's kind of like a Rome, a Vatican correspondent. And he, he said this, you know, they're, they're talking about the, the planning, the activities for the young people. And imagine if your leaders did this uh, to the young people in our congregation. They had four days of scheduled free, tri- free time where they wanted the young people to visit a mosque to visit a Hindu shrine. They had five or six different types. They wanted them to go in dialogue and learn all of the things they could about the other people. There is no interest in conversion of faith to Jesus Christ. It's like that. the days of Deuteronomy 6, 4 are over in the hierarchy of many of the Catholic Church thinkers. It's shocking. And one of the things that's interesting is the young people weren't interested in following that agenda. I mean, the, the commentary said that the, the, the priests and bishops who planned this are all the hippies from the 60s, and the young people don't want that anymore. And some of the, the Hindu shrines and elsewhere, that were, they had very few young people even visit them. They had another ceremony. It was a tree planting ceremony. Seven trees were planted, and there was a cardinal there to oversee the planting of these trees, an ecumenical process to represent all of the major religions of the world. The exclusivity of an incomparable God is like gone. That's what I'm trying to emphasize. We, we must never lose that in our thinking. I also read another interesting story about a maybe a French Catholic missionary living somewhere in the Amazon tribe and they are intentionally not telling them anything about Jesus. They are simply there to kind of apologize for all of the wrongs done. And there were wrongs done, believe me. I'm not defending uh, many of the things that took place. But they are rather in a state of mind of learning from the pagans and their religion. And they have no interest in saying anything about a God that is incomparable that Solomon said. I mean, in, in that sense, Solomon beats them hands down. And he lives long before the coming of Jesus Christ. We have greater revelation. And I want to be friendly with other people, what we talked about in the Sunday school class this morning, right? Of Muslim parents speaking up at school board meetings, but they don't believe in the same God we believe in. There is one God, and that is the Christian God. And that is why we, that song talks about mission, that the whole world must know something about Jesus Christ. And there is a foreshadowing of that here in 1 Kings chapter 8. Moses knew this as well in Exodus 15, 11, after the Exodus. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? God alone 
is God. And this is the God of the Bible. It's the God that we believe in. But notice after Solomon makes his, this good confession about God, he had something about the real accountability that God would hold these kings to. This unconditional promise that God gave to David, there seems to be an element of conditionality in it, right? In terms of the king that would sit on the throne. And he emphasizes that. It's true for God's people, but especially for the son of David that will be reigning in Israel. Our second thought here is Solomon prayed for God's people. There are seven prayer petitions here, and they all focus on the future. What are most of these petitions about? Before we answer that question, look at verses 27 through 30. Another interesting statement from Solomon. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? That's an interesting question in light of what has just happened in verses 10 and 11. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. That is another, this is like the second or third example from the lips of Solomon in this book that remind us that the Israelite who understood God's revelation never ever thought that God would be locked up in a temple. If you think that about them, you know, this is an example. That was an abuse perhaps or maybe a superstition that developed, but the Old Testament never teaches that. That wasn't the purpose of the temple. Verse 28, yet have regard have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray, when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon knows that God dwells in heaven and he also dwells on earth, that the earth is a replica of the the greater reality of God reigning from heaven. And throughout this passage, Solomon is emphasizing when God's people sin, may the Lord hear and forgive. That applies to all ages of God's people. And this links back up to verse 15, of course. Solomon now turns his attention to the temple's broader significance as what? A focal point of prayer. That is a very important, it's not just a place of sacrifice, it is that, but it's also a place of prayer. It's a place where people, wherever they lived in Israel, perhaps would face towards Jerusalem and pray towards the temple. Daniel did that. Nehemiah did that. That's not superstition. That's hope because that's the place where God hears the prayers and dwells with his people. Again, this emphasis upon prayer helps us to see another broader aspect of the purpose of the temple. The statement here from heaven appears at least seven times. I think it appears more than that in this chapter. The main purpose of verses 27 through 30 is to emphasize that this, if any, that the temple of, of all places in the earth is the place from which God hears. Again, God is unique in heaven above or on earth below, verse 23. And even the highest heavens cannot contain the Lord. That's maybe why Solomon asked that question, how much less this temple that I have built? 
the cloud that descended on the, uh, on the tabernacle in Moses' day and now the temple in Solomon's day, even that is but a token of God's presence, right? We couldn't handle to see all of God's glory. Moses couldn't handle it. Solomon couldn't handle it either. And yet Solomon knows that although God is transcendent, he is also imminent and he is determined that he will live in a close relationship with his people. And those two truths are both true. He knows that God has revealed himself in the past, especially in the time of Moses. Solomon is not praying for anything that is new here, is he? He's simply repeating what God has already revealed prior to his lifetime. He understands that the covenant described is written down. It's written what we would call scripture. It's in the Pentateuch. It teaches that God desired to have a relationship with Israel among all the nations of the earth. I mean, Deuteronomy 7 is clear about that. Solomon expects God and he believes that God fulfilled that promise spoken in Deuteronomy 12 verses 4 through 11 that he would choose a place where he would put his name to dwell. Worship would be centralized in Israel's history and it is at this point. And Solomon hopes for God's presence because of what he knows about God's character. That's why he can pray the way he does in the verses that follow, especially beginning at verse 31. The temple will serve as a physical symbol of these divine realities. Here the unapproachable Lord becomes approachable and ready to help those who worship, sacrifice, and pray to Him. Again, there are seven petitions. They are are all royal requests, and they are all about the future of Israel's relationship with this God who has entered into covenant with them. Most of the petitions are about Israel's or humanity's sinfulness and how God can forgive and restore that relationship. The first petition, verses 31 through 32, is about justice. If a man sits against his neighbor, sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Solomon, the wisest person living at this point in history, if he can't solve a justice case or a dispute, he says, then God's got to do it. Now, if Solomon had to face that, you think that there's going to be a lot of other cases in the world and even in the church where sometimes leaders don't know exactly what to do? Lord, you have to determine what is who is right in this situation? Petitions 2, 3, and 4, beginning in verse 32 and following, they all focus on largely the same issue of sin. Verse 33, when your people of Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in his house, this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. There was a defeat in Joshua 7. There was a defeat in the book, several defeats in the book of Judges. And of course, the well-known defeat in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And and, and the solution is simple, right? There's a real problem. God's people have sinned, and when they sin, they are called to repent and seek God in forgiveness. Verses 35 and 36, when heaven is shut up. Petitions 3 and 4 are are really all about the covenant curses that are mentioned in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, 
If they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance, right? That's, that's an expression of the covenant curse. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. The next one in verse 37 to 40, if there is a famine in the land, right? All of these are covenant curses. God promised if you live in disobedience to the covenant, there will be things that happen that I will punish you with, right? We, we hear about the plague and sickness in verse 37. Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they, may, that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers." I mean, God blessed Solomon with great wisdom at this point in his life. And in his life and in his kingship, he understood that God's people will sin. And he also knows that God's people will always need to be forgiven. And he's just rehearsing different scenarios. And he's praying prayer requests that are so applicable to all of us today. And by the way, the prayers of Solomon, really all of them are answered by Jesus. I'm not even going to go into that tonight, but they're all answered in many ways by Jesus. That's a fascinating and very encouraging thought for us to consider. Solomon took sin seriously and he took forgiveness seriously. We are the cause of the first and God is the reason for the second. I mean, all of us can ask the question, how serious do I take sin in my life? How serious do we take sin in our church? If we take sin seriously, we certainly ought to take the forgiveness and mercy of God with even greater seriousness because that is the solution, isn't it? I like something I picked up from Dale Ralph Davis as he talked about this particular passage of Scripture. And he said, all of us have probably been or heard a college graduation speech that is just filled with lots of fluffy talk. Things like, you're the hope of the world. And he says that that stands in such sharp contrast, all that flattery and unwise statements, it stands in such sharp contrast to the prayers of Solomon here that it doesn't say anything about you're the hope of the world. God is the hope of the world. The sin that we, we create and mess up in our life, we need forgiveness, and God is the only one that can bring that forgiveness into our lives. It's a true reality. Solomon is not distorting reality. He's not saying anything new here, is he? He's simply praying the scripture, whether you realize it or not. He's praying the Bible, what is revealed, has been revealed to Moses. He's talking about the threats for punishment, but also the blessings for obedience. Deuteronomy 31 through 10. And we've already encountered the phrase throughout this chapter that when they prayed, apparently they prayed facing Jerusalem, if you're not there. Daniel did that. When he opened his windows, he faced Jerusalem. Nehemiah does something quite similar. That wasn't something that, I'm sure it could boil down to superstition, but it's also something involved hope in a real theology that when God's people sin, the place where God answers prayer at that time, it came from the temple. And so they oriented themselves to the temple. Jesus is one greater than Solomon. And he also taught us a model prayer. Aren't there six petitions somewhere in Matthew? Begins our father. 
But in addition to that, Jesus, the greater king than Solomon, we have an insight into his prayer in John 17 before he goes to the cross to die for our sin. We all know that the solution to our sin can only be found and cured in Jesus Christ. Why did Solomon include foreigners in his prayer? This may strike us as odd here. The sixth petition, verses 41 through 43, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, the Gentile, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Already we have we have indications, not just here, but before this and after this, that the purpose of God's sovereign election was never ever meant to be limited to the people of Israel alone. There was always a broad worldwide focus there. And this is an example. Before Solomon was born, Rahab came, didn't she? The temple wasn't built yet. Before Solomon spoke this petition, Ruth came, small trickles of Gentile coming to join themselves to the people of God. We also seem to have a hearkening back here to the promise that God made to Abraham that through you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That sounds rather global to me, doesn't it? Lathart has some great great comments on this whole point. And it wasn't Jesus that first came up with this idea that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, Solomon here says it, and Isaiah says it, and Jesus simply is expanding. That's the purpose of the temple, isn't it? It's to take us back to Eden and beyond, that the purpose of this temple was for worship and worship for all of God's creatures. That's what brings glory to God. And the temple marks a moment in the history of the Gentiles. This is not merely for Israel. There's something far greater in this. How did the king's prayer end? It ended by speaking about sin and exile. It's a longer section. I'll just look at part of it. Verse 46, if they sin against you, right? This is right out of Romans. For there is no one who does not sin. I mean, it's the same thinking of Romans, so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy. And then down in verse 52, let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you, even if they call to you from Babylon. Solomon is saying there can be another opportunity for a new exodus. And they can come out of there just like God called them out of, out of where? Egypt. And that is perhaps why he again talks about your inheritance declared through Moses, your servant, when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, the Lord, the, the O Lord God. I mean, this prayer is anticipating what is about to unfold in the rest of the book of Kings. God has a powerful arm to deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery, and God also can do the very, very same thing as they did when God's people sinned and got themselves into exile over there in Babylon. So already in the Old Testament, the, the, the deliverance from Egypt is a model for salvation. And of course, we believe that Jesus Christ is leading the greatest exodus ever. It is a worldwide exodus, isn't it? 
He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Solomon. There's a wordplay in Hebrew that I learned in reading another commentator uh, in, the, in these verses. It's a wordplay that the two words sound the same in Hebrew. The, the phrase take captive and whether your translation has returned or repent, they sound a lot, a, lot, a lot alike. And of course, the reason for that would be that repentance is the key to God hearing the prayers of his people, even if they're calling to him for help way over there in Babylon. When they repent, he will bring them home. It's true for the days of Solomon, and it's also true for us today, isn't it? When we recognized we were in a state of sinfulness and we called out to God for our salvation and repentance, God brought us out of exile, didn't he? And we still have to live that life. We still have to repent on a regular basis. And so this prayer that we've just surveyed briefly, it really anticipates what is about to unfold in the book of Kings. Again, the hope of God's people for the future is always based on the past promises that God has revealed to his people. Today in Christ, our future hope is based on the past work of his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then quickly, Solomon blessed God's people. That's how this wonderful day ended. What did Solomon do after the prayer? Now, as Solomon finished, verse 54, offering all his prayer and plea to the Lord, This is where we see something new here. Apparently, at some point in this prayer, he had gotten down on his knees right before all of the people. He arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to this people Israel according to all that he promised. Again, he goes back to Moses. And he challenges the people in his final words to remain, right? Verse 61, let your heart therefore be holy, true to the Lord your God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. What a beautiful sight, a posture of a king of Israel in submission to the king of heaven. Again, we're not going to get a lot of this in the remaining chapters of the book of Kings. It's a beautiful sight. Let's enjoy it while we're here. In a loud voice, a royal benediction to bless God's people. And in many ways, in blessing God's people, he is simply blessing and praising the name of the Lord. Was the dedication a joyful event? Well, in verses 62 to 66, yes, it was a joyful event, wasn't it? This was the celebration of the week-long Feast of Tabernacles. And it was also coinciding with the dedication of the temple. Again, highly significant. You you noticed in the previous verses, Solomon mentions that word rest. That is theologically charged with lots of promises, isn't it? It was a great assembly, verse 65. Seven days, verse 66. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king. And everyone was happy with this king at this time in history. Their king loved God. Their king loved the people of God. Lots of sacrifices were made. It's mentioned 22,000 in verse 63. And there the king consecrated, right? This Davidic king is engaging in priestly acts in the outer courtyard. And David and Solomon, right? They also portray that aspect of priestly involvement. Like his father David, King Solomon performs a priestly act at sacrificing at the dedication of the temple. The whole occasion was marked by great reverence for God as well as an attitude of praise and thankfulness to the Lord for all that he had done. Again, that last last verse is quite encouraging as the people went back to their homes joyful and glad of heart. 
Well, do you see the significance of this event? There are so many things that we could mention. I'm only going to limit it perhaps to one. But God had taken up residence and he began to dwell with his people right, in, in, in what was a more permanent fashion than the tabernacle. The Feast of Tabernacles was a very popular feast. It was a harvest festival, in some ways likened to our Thanksgiving Day or the other nations of the world that have fall festivals. It was a festival to celebrate not only the gathering in of the crops, but it also reminded God's people that they were still pilgrims. They had not reached their final rest. And here Solomon seems to have testified, well, the rest has now come. We're in the land. We have a permanent place for God to dwell with his people. Worship is centralized. The theme of rest is important. It's important for physical rest, but also the theological rest that the rest of the Bible. You know, we were singing Psalm 95 earlier. That is a really interesting psalm because that psalm is quoted in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4, and it talks about rest. And what's interesting about Psalm 95 is that they're already in the land, they already possess the temple, but the theme of rest is obviously not exhausted because if it was exhausted, if it was already fulfilled, then why would Jesus have to come? Hebrews 3 and 4 takes that theme of rest and it reflects back upon the first generation that came out of Egypt and God was not happy with the disobedience. Hebrews 3.11, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is God's rest, isn't it? Just entering into the land was not equivalent for the final fulfillment of entering into God's rest. You could be living in the land and far from God's rest. That quote from Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3.11 is quite significant. The rest is far greater than living in the land of Israel. In fact, later in Hebrews 4.3, where Jesus Christ has brought into this, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, we read this, For those who have believed enter that rest. And interestingly, the author quotes from Genesis 2.2. The rest described there is the eternal rest, the goal of creation. And that can only be entered now through Jesus Christ. This is a saving, this is, this rest is a saving from sin rest, isn't it? This is an eternal rest. This is a rest that only comes and is only found by faith through Jesus Christ. Thank God that because of the person and work of Jesus Christ, by faith we have entered this rest. Entering this rest in this life means we too are still living as pilgrims. And that's also what the Feast of Tabernacles reminded the people they were they're gathering the crops, but also God was gathering his people, right, to be one day living with them in eternity. Entering this rest in this life means we too are still living as pilgrims in many ways, like the Israelites, but we have entered into this rest in Christ already. But we still look for the day when King Jesus will return, and all things in that day will be made new and perfected forever. And in that great day, the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people, will be fulfilled for the first time in a whole new way. The final fulfillment will come forever. There will be no more sins to confess for eternity and God will dwell among his people forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the royal request of Solomon. But Lord, we thank you even more for the high priestly requests and petitions of Jesus Christ, one who is far greater than Solomon and Moses. 
And Lord, we are thankful that the author of Hebrews reminds us that in Christ we have entered into this rest, this rest that was made available from the creation of this world, a rest that even Solomon could not achieve by building a temple. Lord, we are thankful for how the theme of rest develops in Scripture, and we are grateful that you have saved us from our own sin, Lord, that we can rest from trying to save ourselves. Father, we're thankful for the work of Jesus Christ and the hope that it gives us. Lord, as our prayers and worship are now directed and centered upon Him, Lord, we pray that You would keep us faithful in our own life. As Solomon charged the people in his day to leave wholeheartedly in walking with the Lord, may You give us the grace that we need this week to leave tonight, Lord, wholeheartedly acknowledging who Jesus Christ is and what He has done in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would receive that grace that we need this week to love you and to serve you and to obey you. Lord, we are thankful for your salvation and we're thankful for all of your people. And Lord, we pray that the message of the gospel would continue to go to all of the ends of the earth. And again, Lord, if we have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone this week, we pray that we would take that advantage and help us with the words to say. Lord, we pray that you would bless your people tonight. In Christ's name we pray, amen.